Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Are you ready, Alex? I'm ready. Okay, who do we have up for today? Today we have Luke Riley. He's an expert in campaign data and analytics from his years working on multiple campaigns around the country. Most recently, in 2016, he was on the inside of Hillary Clinton's data operation in her Brooklyn headquarters, and he's here now to give us the inside take on quantifying voter behavior and all the tactics campaigns use to influence it. Luke, welcome to the show. Hey, happy to be here, guys. Fantastic. And so, Luke... You've uh, you've worked on multiple campaigns, and I know that um, you and I have worked together quite a bit. And so really here, this discussion is going to be about sort of how do campaigns target voters? How do they how do they sort of build predictive models? Uh, we had a lot of conversations in 2016 about how, you know, all the modeling was wrong. And um, I sort of want to start the conversation out with that. What was your sort of take on 2016? And uh, and all of the modeling and, and the big data operation that went into that. Yeah. Um, uh, so to be clear, um, I am I'm not a, a data uh, scientist. There's two sides of the uh, data field. There's there's the um, uh, side that's out there, like building these um, very complex models, the very sort of higher minded math math minds, and the and then there's more of like the data management side. We were sort of focused on the reporting of uh, what's going on in in the field and um, getting the right numbers in front of the right people. The basic operation was very close to the 2012 campaign, just with like better uh, technology um, and less volunteers, unfortunately, <laughs> because um, fewer people volunteered for Hillary than Barack Obama. And at the end of the day, with the best data in, in the world, if you don't have the volunteers to, to knock on the doors, your method for for selecting the best door can't beat more volunteers, ultimately. And so why do you think that was? Um, how did we end up in that situation where we had the best tools, the best data, the best analytics, and just like Obama, but yet we didn't have the volunteers and sort of the enthusiasm? How did that come about? Yeah, I think we uh, saw it very starkly during the primary. Uh, there was... There were so many volunteers on Bernie's campaign that they had had a tool built where um, there's rules about um, calling people on on cell phones, right? And so there were volunteers that just sat there and clicked on a computer screen uh, saying, call this person, call this person. And so that sent out calls uh, to people on, on cell phones and then sent those calls to volunteers in call centers in a way that, that um, if you were doing that, 
without volunteers sitting there clicking, it would be in violation of, of the laws against automated calling of cell phones. But um, just the volume of people that are required for that should show just just the uh, stark change there. And things never really uh, came to where all of the um, Bertie Valls came to help in the general. So the the divide didn't help, but I think in the, in the end, like it was, it was a lack of uh, clear message and a, a lack of uh, balls being directly inspired, uh, which is something that data can't help you with. And so, my real question, I suppose, is, um, you know, we've got the the contrast here drawn to the Bernie campaign, where they had that uh, that enthusiasm from the candidate down to the ground level. We look at uh, the Trump campaign, and they certainly had the enthusiasm from the candidate and the the message that resonated with them, and sort of translated that into ground level support. But what really you know hangs in my mind is what the hell were they doing with data? What were they doing with data and analytics to actually you know amplify that message? And um, Cambridge Analytica has really gotten a lot of attention recently. Um, with some, um, uh, some people would say cutting edge data and tactics and, um, others would call it, you know, fake data, fake news. I want to get your, your take on, on what exactly was different between Hillary Clinton's campaign and Trump's. Right. So, um, what a model in the field looks like is our persuasion score. Um, this was something first done in 2012 where you have a score for each person on a scale from zero to 100, um, showing how persuadable th- this person is, right? And you test that by um, having a round of robo survey calls um, and then a live call and then another round of survey calls to the same people. And you are trying to see how that live call changed a person's mind in between those two robo survey calls, right? And then from there, you can make assumptions about what kinds of people are are more likely to change their mind during that live call in between the two robo surveys there. And um, that was where most of the, the focus was for us. I think most of the focus on the Cambridge Analytics side was was in the ad buys. Um, as people may or may not know uh, now, the ads that you see uh, when you're watching TV on a cable box um, can sometimes be catered uh, to you specifically, right? So the person next door is not necessarily seeing the same ads coming uh, uh, during the same show at the same time, right? And that's like on on a major network, right? You're saying like like that could be on, you know, uh, any of the major news networks, and the actual ad content is going to differ just based on your particular individual household. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it is targetable down to the cable box. Wow. That is, that's 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 fascinating. And so, is that actually being used in a really? Is it being used in a big way that we can? You know, you take that. See, I'm, I'm imagining it works like, okay, we have this persuasion score. We have this score of how likely a person is to be persuadable. Mm-hmm. And then based on whoever's highest on that score, we go to our you know local cable ad distribution company and we tell them, all right, here's what I want to do. I want to target everyone individually who has a high number on this score. Are they able to target it down to that? micro level yeah to actually get it down okay dude i mean is that a practice yeah yeah so so the so the the um use of of the scores in the gable box is 
is not something that I've, I work with directly. I'm more in the field side, so deciding like which doors to knock on, right? But you're usually using that score in conjunction with with the support score and the turnout score, right? So, right. So you are uh, there is a, a score showing from zero to one hundred how likely you are to actually come out and and um, vote, and a separate score from zero to one hundred showing how likely you are to support Hillary versus Trump for this particular election, right? Um, and so, and so you, you use those, uh, three sets of, of scores to, to decide which doors to knock on for that day. But for the cable box targeting, um, you're usually using much more scores to um, find the people because you're doing so with much less control with the actual people being chosen because uh, these things happen very quickly based on, uh, preset algorithms um, in in the system. Yeah, it's it's amazing when we talk about advertisement and how advertisers you know target that you know something like um, like Facebook's platform has become very useful for advertisers because it allows them to target very specifically you know exactly who it is that they want to target you know this particular person in this in this particular zone and um, I think that. If you if you have all of this information on a particular person and it's being used, you know, to target people, um, that that could definitely be used to um, enter the conversation in your in your prospect's head or in your voter's head about what it is that they they actually want to have. So here's a question that that I had when we were you know just thinking through this is, um, you know, we've heard a lot about the targeting of things that happened during the 2016 election on. Um, Facebook and how in particular that the Trump campaign received assistance from, you know, Russian sources and things like this. Do you think that part of their modeling, um, I mean, you may or may not know, but maybe you have a best guess on this. Do you think that part of their modeling was actually particularly geared toward targeting those people who were either more persuadable or more vulnerable to that kind of message that was, um, you know, being disseminated. I mean, I think it would almost definitely have to be when we're looking at some of the the um, advice on uh, Facebook. There was a a story about a large rally um, in in Texas that, that was made by a team from Russia. The, the um, whole thing was was um, done with like something like two hundred dollars in ads on um, Facebook, and so to, to find those people with such a like small budget. Um, you would need a a very precise way of narrowing down to the correct people to talk to there. Yeah, and that's just shocking too, because now we've got you know, it sounds like TV is becoming very similar to social media and internet advertising when we can pick out specific people. First, your cable company is collecting all of this information on you, your viewing habits through your cable box, and then able to sell that data and then target ads back to you from political campaigns and other sources. And it's very different from, you know, like voter contact, for example. You're not knocking on somebody's door and having a face-to-face conversation where a person is sort of aware that this is happening to them right then and there in that interaction. With things like social media and now television being so so targeted in a less in-your-face manner, it seems a little bit more 
I don't want to say insidious, but no, insidious was the word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I I think there was a like a lot of uh, talk in 2012 about how gems had gone so far in the game in data, and the other um, side just just wasn't catching up. I think that that gap has been closed, and it's hard to see how we would make the leaps and bounds of 08 and 2012 in in the same way in in the future. Um, so what happened? How did we blow our lead? I mean, I think the Uncheck in 2012 was impressive because we had all of our shit in one sock, right? There was all of our data coming in from the online stuff, um, our financial data, all of our field stuff was was all coming into one system, right? And that was game changing, but that is no longer a impressive feat technologically, right? And uh, other groups like Cambridge can can find all that data and have that piped in with pretty simple operations. So it's um, tough to see how we build a, um, a score or model that is um, game changing because we have more access to info. Because these groups with more uh, funds than the DNC have been collecting much more data than us and do so on a much larger scale, I think. And is there a lot of sharing that goes on between campaigns and, you know, other organizations? Like we're talking about TV and we're talking about, um, you know, Facebook and social media. And, um, you know, it's kind of like you'll, you'll, you'll have in your, in your email box, you know, someone's email and all of a sudden just randomly Facebook suggests that you add them as a friend. Like that type <laughs> right, of big right. data, you know, is, is, is so... Um, it, it's, it's becoming something that I think follows us around. And so I'm really curious about to what extent, um, political campaigns are starting to use that type of data in, um, actually forming their models or targeting, you know, to, to people like, is, is there a lot of sharing that goes on between, you know, other companies or is it more, um, you know, collected within or, you know, self-collected within the particular organization. There's a lot of sharing. There's a lot of um, uh, buying uh, there. So like th- there is like two kind of streams here, right? Um, so campaigns will typically buy from an aggregator like InfoUSA uh, does a lot of data collection. And then from there uh, at a personal level, Willem say that this guy, Alex, is a likely pet owner, right? Based on like all these um, tiny pieces of info about his uh, purchase history, things coming through that they can't legally share directly because he's not opted in for the DNC to know that. But like they can tell us all of these findings from that same data, right? And then a second stream is like a live feed of data where like if like someone's in your your own phone then facebook knows pretty quickly right and campaigns are not yet at that level where there's live data flowing uh, it's more um it's more like updates from groups like info usa or um more campaign minded groups like catalyst um that, that are this, this, this has to be coming Right, it's it's coming. It's like oh, okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's 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 two p.m. Open the RNC app and like President Trump's latest tweet. You know, right. like this is this 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 is going to be coming pretty soon. That is the next step, definitely. That that like live feed of like, oh, you just walked by this campaign office, or you know, like uh, we would love for you to volunteer right now because you were you were sitting in a coffee place that that is helpful in some way, right? And so one thing, how predictive are these models um, and these, these uh, especially like the personality models or even like the, the voter models, because, you know, 
uh, I'm still modeled in a lot of databases as, you know, being Caucasian Republican right, or something. Right. There, you get wild results sometimes. What's your take on that? Like, how effective are they? Like, do we are we doing all of this for nothing and then that half of it's wrong anyway? Right. I mean, like, um, if you have like a a score of like 51% Caucasian, right? Then like if you have like 100 Alex's there with the same uh, things that, that they know about you, 51 of those people will will be Caucasian, right? You just are in the group of the 49 non-Caucasian Alex's given what they know about you, right? Um, so right. what's most important is is not like having every single field correct. It's it's knowing precisely what the percent risk is, right? Right. And then all of those things can, uh, when properly fielded out, can come to knowing a full person, right? So it's not so much about each individual as it is about the aggregate. As the, the on a larger scale, it's effective. But if you drill down to each individual person, things might not all line up. Exactly. But like the like general message to most people works out pretty well. Because we are micro-targeting through like this kind of fuzzy picture of this person, right? And what's interesting too is that we end up in a world where, you know, in, in drawing back to our earlier conversation in 2016, everybody said the models were wrong, the predictions were wrong, the New York Times predictability meter was driving everybody nuts. Right. But in reality, you know, what Donald Trump had... Uh, it did have a shot at what it was like a 20% shot at winning. And if you ran the election four times, he's going to win one of them. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, I, I think towards the end, there was like a 70% chance of Hillary winning. Right. And like, if I told you that there is a 70% chance of, uh, the Patriots winning the Super Bowl, right? Like you would, you would not then go and, you know, Bet, bet your entire house on on them winning, right? There's still a 30% chance of the Eagles winning, right? Um, and there's like this separation where like people can see that in a sports game, but they don't see that in like a campaign prediction. They like hear 70%, they're like, oh, there's no way that Hillary can lose. But like if you ran that campaign 10 times, you know, seven times Hillary would have won three times we're in the reality we are now. And there's a little bit of like a confirmation bias in that too. You know, being a, say you're a Democrat and you hear 70% chance, you're now hearing 100% chance. <laughs> you're hearing, of course we're going to win. Yeah. Uh, and sort of that's self-reinforcing. And then the next time that you hear a model or, you know, scoring or anything like that, you think you've been burned before, so everything is terrible and don't ever believe what data says. Right, right. It's worth noting that the polls on Northam in 2017 were much more off than the, than the polls in 2016 were. Um, it, was just, it was just that they were, they were off on the correct side. And so we, we I mean, like... Um, so it actually got worse, but they were ultimately right, so everybody said everything's good. Right, right. I mean, the sample sizes were smaller. It's an off-year election, so there's, there's a lot more... Um, volatility to it so i wouldn't say that the polls are getting worse but like like four percent off is four percent off you know regardless of of whether that crosses the threshold or not right and it's tough to get the general population to see that right right and a four a four percent chance or whether it's a ten percent chance or a set or a thirty percent chance you know it's still a chance and I think the the question is like what is it that people are supposed to do when they're reading these polls um, in terms of making predictions at all? Because if we if we say okay, this person has a ninety percent chance of winning, 
And we could go, well, you know, you flip the coin ten times, one of them is going to turn out with the other person actually, um, you know, winning that race. And, you know, so a person looking at that, is it kind of like, are people just not trained to think in terms of probabilities? Are they trained more to think in terms of absolutes? And how does this actually impact the um, a person actually coming and raising their hand and saying, hey, this is really important to me. I'm going to take some of my time to come and volunteer for this campaign, or I'm going to become involved in some way, or I'm going to post it on social media, or I'm going to actually turn out and vote, you know, and, and do that. Like, because if, if the, if the polling is saying, Hey, this person has a 95% chance of winning. I think there's some people who are just like 95%. Why even show up? Right. Which is interesting because a lot of the message testing we've done on campaigns shows that people are more likely to turn out if you say that like a lot of people are going to vote today. Right. But I mean, you could picture the M person that, that says like, well, it's like the M spread is too large for my vote to matter, so I'll just stay home. Um, but like there is this basic enthusiasm issue that is tough to put numbers to. And like a person who, who follows the um, polls doesn't have a great way of seeing that, right? Right. And so that's why a lot of campaigns spend a lot of time messaging that this election is going to be very close your vote, um, you know, matters. We need, you know, X number of people in your precinct to get out um, and sort of build sort of that that uh, that group mentality. You're not going to show up to a party if, you know, somebody called you up and said, hey, do you want to come to my party? There's only going to be a handful of people here and we'd really like it if you came. Right, that's but in all of our said, trainings that we do. Is that Right. Yeah. But if you make the argument that, yeah, it's going to be a huge party, lots of people are coming out, you're going to have a great time and really make a difference. Somebody's going to show up. Right. Exactly. And and doesn't that doesn't that, though, like if we have this messaging of, OK, it's really serious, it's really serious, it's really serious. Like, I think a certain amount of people are going to continue to, you know, hold that energy and, and go with it and say, OK, you know, now I'm feeling angry and now tomorrow I'm even angrier than before. And it just reinforces the the skew toward one side or the other. But I think there's other people who they look at it. I mean, I can count myself among this that, you know, they look at it and they say, all right, this message now has become so saturated that, you know, I'm not even listening to it anymore. That, you know, how many times can I get in my email box someone saying that, this vote is the only one that has mattered, you know, for the entire time <laughs> in the entire world. And then you find out that, oh, by the way, that vote got lost. Wait a second. Oh, no, this one is the one that matters. And it turns out we never really had much of a much of a shot there to begin with. You know, maybe the odds were only, you know, five percent of, of turning out. But the the the, the sense of, OK, we're going to light a fire under your butt and make you go in or, you know, enthuse you to go and do this, um, you know, it, it seems to me like that that's a little bit overdone. Yeah, especially with the um, DTRIP emails. Um, do, do you um, follow oh, those? God. <laughs> there, oh, God. There's, there's these, like, constant, like, um, these, like, really, like, uh, like harsh coloring, flashing gifts of, of like, donate now, <laughs> the world is on fire. Right, meteor will crash and, if you and, don't donate. Yeah, and, like, I, <laughs> I, 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 I just don't know why more people don't unsubscribe from that. And, like, that, that like, seems like, like you're burning through lists. But there must be some strategy there 
um, to where they they like have like some way of like getting this people back on the on their list because it just seems like this 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 really harsh message of of constantly telling people that like they they are in perilous danger of 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 the world just falling apart. Um, uh, then, <laughs> I mean, I I have unsubscribed years ago because uh, it's not healthy to look at. Right? <laughs> They're yeah, it's the not healthy at all. Right, right. I thought, but that reminds me. I remember right after the 2012 election, you know, uh, Obama formed his nonprofit, Organizing for Action, and um, Sarah Alamine was running a lot of the uh, the field program for that mm-hmm. and um, a lot of the outreach. And I remember hearing she was on NPR one time talking about sort of the email strategy of the Obama campaign and how they discovered that no matter how many times they emailed people, n- people didn't unsubscribe. Right. That uh, a ver- like a, such a small fraction of people unsubscribed that they just started blasting out as many emails as they could as often as they could. And people kept donating even after the campaign was over and done with. You still send emails to these people, and they still donate. And um, sure, that's fascinating. And it's almost like campaigns have latched onto that, and now it's gone to you know the the millionth degree, right. where now everybody is adding to every email list and um, just spamming. I I wonder if if that, those rules still hold true that people don't unsubscribe still. Yeah, I mean, email is a whole different side of uh, data, um, usually called uh, jobs in digital. There's a lot of talk about how there's um, the A-B testing, right, where you have a test group and you send a control group the um, sort of normal email and then the test group and the same email with um, a slight change, like some new graphic or um, some new change in the uh, wording of the subject there. And if you're if you're constantly just blasting out emails as fast as possible, are you doing as much of that? Right. Right. I remember the most uh, the most clicked on email, most open email was uh, anyone from uh, President Obama that had just the subject line of hey <laughs> and that was the most opened email they did start to kind of look like um like a jilted lover's emails right like- <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was that meme going around of uh the emails that <laughs> <laughs> like what's up how you doing what are you up to this friday <laughs> where have you been yeah exactly and the obama campaign used this uh pretty you know, pretty famously that they used all of this type of targeting in, you know, in the A-B testing and being able to really craft this message that um, they really considered to be, at least from from what I was reading, kind of pioneers in this um, in this kind of digital space to be able to really craft the message in that way. Um, do you think that, you know, the Hillary Clinton campaign or the Northrum campaign or, you know, the, do you think that they were as sophisticated with this type of... Um, this type of testing. Yeah. So like the real origins were the Howard Dean campaign in 2004. Um, they like really sort of mastered the online fundraising. Right. Um, and I think most campaigns since them have, have, have just kind of been like pushing the bar like a little bit, but like they, they like really wrote the first kind of playbook on the um, AB, AB testing. And um, I mean, like the much more historical uh, sort of online fun, uh, fundraising story was from Bernie's campaign. Again, more from the, from a sort of enthusiasm there than any like a sort of monstrous data uh, group. I mean, there was a, a group of very smart uh, people in our email uh, operations there. I am curious if a a sort of less controlled 
message um, could have made a stronger impact, right? It um, seemed, like, seemed like a lot of this was um, sort of tested through a lot of focus groups, a lot of uh, um, things to, to where it was kind of cleaned down to something that like didn't offend anyone, but like made <laughs> everyone <laughs> like sort of unhappy, right? Yeah, and that's that's a big question is, okay, to what degree are we saying this doesn't offend anyone versus testing the effectiveness? Because I think that uh, whether something is offensive or not and whether it's effective or not in terms of getting someone to actually take some action or, or turn out or do something you want them to do, those are two different questions. Yes. W- which do you think is the, is the more important one for campaigns? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> Uh, and like, and like the truth is that like you like have to walk and chew gum at the same time, right? But like the answering of that question will likely be the biggest job of uh, doing uh, data management in the future. And here's the thing too is that looking back on the 2016 election, we ended up in a world where Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump didn't need to walk and chew gum. We had Bernie Sanders who had nothing to lose; he had nothing to fear. He was trying to push his his initial agenda was to push the Democratic Party further to the left, which he accomplished. But he had nothing to lose. He didn't have to, you know, walk the middle of the road. He didn't have to be afraid of offending anybody. He could say what he wanted and sort of that freedom allowed him to um, to sort of win a certain portion of the electorate that was very large in the Democratic Party. And the same thing with Trump. He, you know. I, to this day, don't think he ever thought himself as a serious candidate. (laughs) And that afforded him a certain freedom to say whatever he wanted. He also had a smaller campaign operation like Bernie that didn't have as many stakeholders. Hillary Clinton was walking around with, you know, what, decades of political consultants and advisors from, you know, all the way back to Arkansas. Um, Everybody whispering in their ear and... um, and, uh, you know, all of these stakeholders from, you know, across generations of political history and had to keep everybody happy. And I wonder how big of an impact that had on on the decisions. Yeah, I mean, when when you like say like back to Arkansas, that that was a real thing. There were real people from Little Rock in our our office in South Carolina there. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and like having to deal with like a lot of people that like had like a lot of opinions and having to explain to them like what what a model is, right? Because they come from a much more sort of old school uh, I open the phone book. Right. right. Um, and like why are we in this neighborhood? There's not a lot of Democrats in this neighborhood. Like that's what targeting is for. And uh yeah, I mean like that was an issue that like I think anyone in the early states had to deal with directly, right? Oh. There's all this this campaign cruft just like like crusted on right um and that just sl- slowed us down most definitely it was much more like a larger sort of corporate mindset as opposed to the Bernie campaign, which was like a very very sort of nimble startup yeah, so I guess what we're saying is that the more nimble startups, the ones that have more flexibility are actually preferable in in being able to kind of move or change a little bit quicker with regard to the messaging. Definitely. I mean, but like Bernie's campaign also lost in the end. So, I mean, this, <laughs> this, so like if you're it only got him so far, right, right, right. I, mean, like, yeah. I would, I would prefer to have the resources of the Hillary campaign, but the like mindset and like mission mentality of the Bernie side there. And that's sort of what Obama had, right? Right. right, right. 
That's why he was so successful. With like a really like militarized group of people that were just like chanting like hope and change um, and um, you know, just willing to do the work there. Yeah, so in, in this particular um, scenario where you actually have a variety of different things that are going to make a uh, candidate successful. So you have, you have, for example, the charisma of the candidate. You have their various messaging, you know, which groups. To what degree can the modeling actually play in the overall election chances of a candidate? You know, so will it help an uncharismatic candidate you know, become successful. Um, you know, I think that we saw that in the um, in the Republican primaries that someone like Jeb Bush, you know, had a lot of things going for him, really. Right. And yet he really didn't get very far. Where do you have the early fundraising money, which is crucial um, and which Trump didn't need because he was self-funding. Right. But if you can't get people to follow you, then you, by definition, are not a politician. Right. Um like that, like that is that is what a leader is. They can get large groups of people to come and do things. That's not to say that like our volunteers weren't truly inspired. We had large groups out there knocking on doors, just like nowhere to the uh, scale of 2012. So what is you know if you have a model, you create a model. That model then gets passed out to the field people. The field people go and knock on doors. Um, you know, or the, you know, advertising people or the email campaign people. But this is all being disseminated from the model. So the modeling is playing kind of a crucial role in how does the information, you know, work. Does that, for example, affect how a person's going to view the messaging that's presented in a debate or a town hall meeting or, you know, some other type of messaging? It's interesting. I mean, like, there's... Uh, there's a lot of discussion about, like, the, like, um, double-touch impacts. So, like, if you, like have a like phone combo and like give a message and then that that same message is is on like uh cnn or like on a uh, debate will that that same message be much more effective uh from two separate mediums right and i think uh, there's a lot of uh, signs showing that that is true and helpful but like that can only go so far right like if you um can't see an issue as uh, something in a certain light then like the uh, reframing can't can't help in the end, right? That's what Obama was so good at. I remember just the the consistency of the scripts that people were given for, say, persuasion conversations were exactly mirrored the talking points that you would see everybody come up on television say, and then you would see Obama give at a rally, and then he would say the same thing in a debate. And the consistency was so remarkable that I could recite the entire, you know, set of talking points, you know, off my head. <laughs> and um, I think Hillary, what we ended up with was sort of the changing script. And every week was a different message, it seemed like. Every week was a new a new sort of theme in, the, in a broader overall message. But, you know, it was like, it was like what, what are we on to now? What's the new, what's the new playbook? Yeah. Oh, there's also a lot of like uh, state campaigns where the uh, field scripts were much more vague to suit like a lot of campaigns and messages there, which may or may not have worked out for us in the end. And we've talked a lot about about models, but can you give a, our listeners a little, um, you know, short description of exactly how those decisions get made? Like, who do we talk to? Right, right. So like, so like a simple example is like a support model, right? I call like a large group and um, poll them. Are you supporting Hillary or uh, Trump? 
and then from that like sort of one through five scale there of like a one being like a strong Hillary support and a five being a strong Trump support use the um, data to see like which like types of people look like a one and which types of people look more like a five based on the data. So they like shop at the same stores, they eat at Olive Garden, they visit the same website. Exactly, exactly. And then um, from there, you give every registered voter in the country a score from zero to 100, right? And then people in the field, like like Alex, use those um, scores to um, pick from a list which doors are being knocked on for that day. Also working with with the field teams there on their capacity to um, speak to voters, uh, which which will decide how far down the list Alex should pull for the field team to speak to those people, right? So there's uh, staff and data all the way down the use uh, stream for the, for the model there, right? And so one thing we want to, for example, if you're running a campaign, you score out their support, like you said, and then also their likelihood to actually get out and vote. And that's sort of where we run into a lot of trouble, right? Is is um, you only have so many elections, you only have so many opportunities to validate your your model. How did that sort of play out in 2016? Yeah, um, I mean, like there were uh, chances uh, during the primary. So you see like uh, like from a support score, like, like which groups are actually turning out to vote. I think in the end, we had the... Uh, uh, support score is correct, but the turnout score, the score showing uh, who is likely to actually come and vote, uh, that was very off. And you especially saw that in um, um, like more rural parts of like Pennsylvania, where we have just just expected like far fewer people in these rural counties to, to have come and vote than actually did. Uh, there was a, a joke that uh, Dave... Uh, Chappelle had on his recent Netflix when he showed up and just saw the people at the polls. He knew that like, wow, this crowd is a very different crowd uh, at at the same polling place um, than was there in 08, right? <laughs> so, so just the uh, choice of like who um, came uh, to vote uh, changed much more drastically than who was choosing either Hillary or a Trump, right? And it's also the the speed at which all of this is being adapted, that people can develop a model and have it be disseminated to their people. Because if you have something like um, in the Alabama special election where you've got these um, you know, claims being made against Roy Moore and you know, the whole thing happened fairly quickly, I imagine, from a campaign perspective. It's like, how how quickly can you adjust your message? How quickly can you actually start to to move things a, a different different way? And of course, we see that how it turned out is that we have a Democrat, a moderate, you know, Democrat that won in Alabama, which is, you know, has been a uh, a red state for a really long time or for a fairly long time that. You know, what is the speed? And I think that what is the speed at which you can change? And I think that you know, if we had more time, if there were more time between the time in which Roy Moore really start, started being attacked and let's say there was a year that went by, do you think that the people in Alabama would have been able to mobilize more? I'm talking about the Republicans, that they would have been able to mobilize more to actually craft a different message or to talk to people or you know, make it turn out a different way. I mean, that's really a story of just like having the wrong person running, right? Where, 
you know, if you if you have a child molester on on the ballot, like that that is going to be a challenge and should be a challenge, um, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously the personality factors are are there, right? But how do you how do you tell your entire base? Hey, by the way, um, we're going to be putting someone else. I mean, they tried to do it. Right. They tried to, to do that. But how do you how do you do that? How do you pull that off in practicality to say, hey, we're going to take someone who has not run before or someone who you don't really know and kind of replace them it was kind of a last last ditch attempt. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad they weren't successful in doing that. Right. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, like once Roy Moore was in the place he was, especially for a campaign in 2017, when, when, when there's a, this like national uh, tone around, you know, seeking out these um, really vile people. Yeah. I, I don't think there was a way for him, him to save that. Right. I mean, like sometimes you are in a no win place in politics. And I think that was, that was the place that his campaign and, and his, his party um, found themselves. But do you think if they had more time, and I'm really asking a question about how quickly does a model get developed? How long does this whole process take to the point from the model being developed to someone being influenced? Do you think if they had more time that they would have been able to change it around? I mean, let's erase the fact that it's Republicans and Democrats. I'm just wondering about campaigns in general. You know, Would they have been able to do something, and how long does it typically take for the message to actually be crafted through? Right, I mean, so like... So, like, nothing on a campaign happens in a vacuum, right? There's, like, a public story, and there's, like, a public, like, press team out there uh, pushing what is hopefully the, the same message that the uh, Vols on, on the door are trying to push. And if your model can help uh, choose which doors you're knocking on, then great. But, like, the message shouldn't stop being given, right? Um, and the time for a, a score to be built... Um, can sometimes vary from months to like sometimes down down to like two weeks, but like the like basic message is something separate to me than than the uh, score process and the deciding of like who's hearing your message at its base. Yeah, and this is something that you know you're you're there's a point here that keeps coming through, which is okay, the organizations that are fast, that are nimble, that are kind of um, have the ability to change on a dime, that are more flexible, you know, with that, that are adapting to the ever-changing conditions. I think we're seeing this more and more, like the world is changing in terms of the dissemination of information and how quick it, quickly people are um, uptaking it or actually bringing it um, into being, that the campaigns that can be flexible with that and, and can do that, um, I think are faring better or, you know, doing it, doing it more, you know, maybe it didn't work for Bernie. Right. right? But it certainly seemed to, to work for Trump in terms of what he, um, in terms of how it all turned out. I mean, I, I think that the more nuanced take on that though is, is that there are, there are pluses and minuses to both. Like there's the, there's pluses to, you know, having the aircraft carrier campaign, like the Hillary Clinton campaign where, You've got massive resources and can just, you know, power through like an icebreaker through, you know, whatever problems or whatever stories or whatever there is like she did in the primaries of just throwing money at a problem and it going away. And um, that works for a lot of situations. Um, it also fails in a lot of situations. 
but that's how certainly Hillary won the primaries was being the aircraft carrier as opposed to, you know, the, the nimble uh, Bernie campaign did not work out in the general, but uh, it could have. Absolutely. Well, some people say that the reason that Bernie, you know, didn't win the primaries was because of the whole DNC scandal, right? Because of that, that whole thing that happened. I mean, are, are we saying that his campaign was sufficiently, you know, not, uh, not crafted toward something someone would vote for enough that that really didn't matter? Well, I think like if we're going to go back to the primaries, take a look at, you know, just going state to state and uh, the sort of the scrum that happened after New Hampshire, where Bernie, you know, by all accounts, didn't really have much of a plan for after New Hampshire and his people scrambled and, uh, you know, flew from state to state for a couple of weeks at a time, whereas a lot of the Hillary campaign had been, you know, embedded in these states for for months and months and had a significantly larger staff that was able to mobilize in even further away states before Bernie people could parachute in at the last second and scramble something together. And so so my point here is that sort of being the aircraft carrier campaign, you have the resources to, you know, push for the long haul and plan, you know, months ahead and, you know, get infrastructure in place. Whereas, you know, being the small nimble campaign, yeah, you can parachute people in at the last second and you've got everybody, you know, ready to go on a moment's notice. But at the same time, you just you just don't have the resources in place at the right moments. Right. And I do think that there was a, a like heavy thumb on the scale for our campaign, though, like it's tough to tell you like exactly what that gets you. Like it's it's um, there's not been a clear thing, you know, besides the uh, sort of van scandal there what the um, like tangible benefits from that were. And I would be interested to see if someone has a, a story of like what that turned into there. Yeah. Yeah. It would be interesting to see if there's any data on what actually the impact of these uh, scandals um, with the DNC were. Yeah. Well, we don't know because um, as Luke said, you know, nothing happens in a vacuum and, um, the thing about that, though, is like if you have the kind of big aircraft carrier campaign or the big um, <laughs> forget how you described it, Alex. But you know, if you have if you have this big campaign coming through, you know, it takes a long time. It's like a huge ship or, a, you know, a tractor trailer that can't really, you know, accelerate very fast. Um, and it works great if you're running a typical campaign i think this is probably what we would see is that if you're running a typical campaign that's going to go um typically based on uh major major uh shifts and values that are pretty predictable then obviously the larger campaign with more resources is going to win i think that one of the things that happened in 2016 is you know what it just wasn't predictable the whole thing was up in air um the the messaging that people were responding to was was different yeah it was um it's sort of like the like uh, the old military saying, right? The the army, the military is always fighting the last war, or is always preparing for the last war, and we can sort of see a little bit of that on the Democratic side. Is that we were we were sort of preparing for the same types of campaigns that had been happening, whereas a lot of the other campaigns were developing something new. Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton and and some of the others were were still fighting the last battle. You know, it's it's tough to like say like exactly what that difference was and like it's also important to note that like trump's campaign had a lot of like really poor strategic choices right they, they like had these like giant rallies in like mississippi that like 
it, it's it's <laughs> unclear exactly what those were for, right? And I mean, like all these like horrible spending of resources and like uh, you know choices that like really didn't benefit anything other than the Trump Corporation, right? And like didn't didn't seem to be to be made uh, to actually benefit the campaign. You know, there's only so much that second guessing can actually get you, right? Like in the end, like we like threw you know as much as we could at the wall. And we got the votes, but just not in the right states. Um, and I don't know it's it's um, there's only so far that we're going to know about that. Yeah, um, I think that wraps up the show. I think we covered everything um, that we were hoping to cover today. Uh, this is fantastic. Thank you for uh, joining us, Luke. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Luke. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and visit us at our website at subliminallycorrect.com. And if you love the show and want to contribute, visit our Patreon in the show notes and become a friend of the show. Thank you, and tune in next time.